0: welcome to lean back i'm laura i'm lisa and today we were going to record an episode about lisa's book black feelings uh out now published by the university press of mississippi and lisa i kind of wanted to start out first of all um you write really good acknowledgement pages. (laughs) Like, they're so warm, and so inclusive. And maybe it just stands out to me because you, uh, you know, shout out a lot of people in our mutual network. But also you talk a little bit about how some of the ideas for this book came out from some of the contemporaries in your field. So I was interested, um, if you wanted to talk about what kind of research went into this book like where you traveled you know what stood out to you as you were developing the ideas for this book
1: the idea for the book actually came out of a rejection that I got from my first book prison power and in the course of my career I've just had a bunch of feedback from mostly white mostly male academics who were really critical of the black power movement just car blanche and they would say things like you know the black power movement didn't accomplish anything and black power advocates were politically immature and reckless and nihilist and they would basically just say all these just really racist anti-black generally but also anti-black male statements about why research about black advocacy especially if it's radical was should not be published so the book started in its very earliest form as part of my rebuttal letter for a rejection of prison power, and then it turned into a conference paper at a, at a premier conference in my field, and then it turned into the kernel for this book. So the first part of this book that I wrote was actually chapter five, which is about memories of King's funeral and... The way in which Black power activists claimed Martin Luther King as a part of Black power, as an intellectual progenitor of the movement. And so I started thinking about just the ways in which people tried to make an artificial distinction between. What they commonly refer to as the Southern Civil rights movement and then and then Black Power, but they were so interconnected, and the activists were in in such close proximity, both in prison while they were you know protesting various things, especially during Mississippi Freedom Summer and the march from Selma to Montgomery, but also just intellectually, they were really riffing off of each other to try and build a more Inclusive, equitable strategy for Black empowerment. So that's sort of how the the book began to emerge. And you know, I did parts of this this book in the Library of Congress and in the Schoenberg Center um, in New York. And I did a bunch of early drafts of some of the chapters around the world. So part of it was written in Sweden at the International Writers House in Stockholm. And I was invited to present some of it in Coimbra, Portugal, for the 50th anniversary of the Tricontinental. And I wrote some of it in Finland at the University of Turku. And so, you know, it was nice to have some space from the U.S. because so many of the people that I write about in this book had such an international perspective and they traveled so widely that it was It was good to be out of the United States to write some of it to, to sort of have access, especially in Sweden because the Swedes were fascinated with the black power so there are all these Swedish interviews you know of malcolm and of Angela Davis and a bunch of black power activists they They were fascinated with George Jackson that I had access to while I was traveling It was pretty great that 's awesome
0: it 's interesting because you open this book kind of with an with an analysis of some of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X's discourses, their discourses are kind of an intellectual lineage to the Black Power movement. And and really, when you were talking about what kinds of feelings that they embodied, I wonder if you want to talk about the differences in their ideology, particularly as it relates to the moods that they express in their writing and organizing.
1: The thing about it is that King is constrained by the fact that he's a preacher's kid and he's Southern and he's Daddy King's boy and he's going to be a preacher. So even though he has radical ideas about lots of things, class and Pan-Africanism, very early in his career and when he's in his very early 20s, you know, he's still constrained and hampered by the rhetorical forms of of the church and by Christian language and parable and, you know, and the sermon as a rhetorical device. So I think that they're actually so much closer rather than further apart. It's just that the rhetorical forms they are able to take are so different. I mean, Malcolm comes out of prison after being a hustler and joins the Nation of Islam and has just so much more rhetorical flexibility because he's not hampered by Family, or by Christianity or by illusions of Americanism. And he's already done time. So he's already served time where King is sort of popping in and out of prison in these jail no bail strategies in Albany and stuff. King is not in the prison. He's in the county jails. So when Malcolm comes out, he just has a very different sense of power and has no optimism whatever, whatsoever about liberalism or white liberals or the president. I mean, he is fundamentally coming from a position where power is always already foreclosed. So I think the biggest difference in the kinds of feelings that they're articulating is really just their their location and what they've had had the chance to see. And I mean, you know malcolm although he's born in omaha lives almost the entirety of his adult life in the north michigan lansing michigan and in new york and boston and so you know he's he's not hanging out in birmingham Right. Like his, his experience as a black man is very much shaped by urban settings where King's is not the same. The way that they experience blackness and black masculinity is very different, you know, between the South and the North. So I think mostly the difference in the feelings that they're harnessing are really products of their, you know, autobiographies and in the structures of the physical and material conditions where they're living, more so than anything ideological at all.
0: You position a lot of their intellectualism around their discourse as it relates to the idea of white fragility. Like, I wonder how you feel about King's use of white guilt and shame as opposed to malcolm's approach which you trace in your chapter american negritude
1: well you know so this is really why i started writing about feelings as a as a method of political analysis because i just saw the exact same structures of you know illogic in the rejection of publications about Black male activists, as I saw in the rejection of those advocates' political proposals by presidents and members of Congress. So the things that were happening in the academy to me, based on my research, were exactly the things that, of course, King and X were critiquing in their lives, right, that were uh, bulwarks against progressive intellectual changes. So... You know, as I think about those two men and how they shaped an entire cohort of humans, I, th- I think that they're both so they continue to be so relevant because they were both so right about so much. You know, Malcolm has a different tone about guilt and shame because he is not beholden. He's not asking for money from white people he doesn't he doesn't need their approval he's outside of their approval structures his livelihood doesn't depend on them in fact his livelihood depends on demonizing them so he has much more rhetorical flexibility to use guilt you know, if he wants to. On the other hand, he's aware that it doesn't do shit. Like you can't motivate white people to do a damn thing that they don't want to based on Christian feeling. Otherwise they wouldn't have enslaved black people for, you know, centuries. So, you know, he he understands the limits of guilt and shame and he's using them more as an appeal to rebuild black pride and less as a thing that he thinks isn't going to intrinsically motivate white people to be better. Where King, I think, at least through the Voting Rights Act in 65 is pretty optimistic that he can shame white people who are Christians. And so in December of 2019, I gave a talk at the new millennium church down in Little Rock and um, the pastor there, Reverend Griffin, Reverend judge Griffin invited me to come down and do a sermon, and I did it on shame. And I, I said, you know, the thing about King and Birmingham is that he thought if he brought all these people out and everybody saw how brutal the Birmingham police were, you know, they would be shamed into supporting the civil rights movement and to ending segregation. And he was, to his, I think, horror wrong about that because as it turned out white people became more entrenched the more that they were confronted with their brutality they became more entrenched in segregation and anti-blackness and so the shame actually calcified their thoughts about anti-blackness in a way I think that really gutted King I mean he was I mean just really disappointed that it went that way. But Malcolm didn't have that Christian optimism to begin with. So he had no illusion that guilt or shame would work. So I actually think that, that shame is the stickiest negative emotion. It's very hard to get out of the body. It lasts a long time. Uh, it, it, it's dependent upon the gaze of another. So there's always an audience which just magnifies the intensity of shame. And so it's a really important tool of social control. And so I think it's very important to be aware of how how, and where we we wield shame because it's such a destructive political emotion. I mean, and they're a, a personal one too. But of course, the interpersonal dimensions have these huge political consequences.
0: In the discussion of Malcolm X, I'm, you talk a little bit about the rejection of hope but still that you know a lot of the feelings uh in malcolm's writings are fundamentally positive based in pride and futurism and creating like an alternative future and you also talk about how a lot of particularly white folks read malcolm's work as hate and his organizing as hate i wonder if you could talk about you know that misread of Malcolm by his contemporaries, particularly white intellectuals and media.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's classic projection. We're living through it in Trumpism right now and like post-truth. You know, that functions primarily because white people project their own feelings onto others. Right. Especially people of color. So the feelings that white, white people have about themselves, they then put into the mouths of black people. And so anything that even comes close to the same kind of affective register, not that it's the same emotion, but it's the same, you know, affective register. It's negative. Then they read that the way that they want to. Right. They appropriate the affective landscape and then put a different word on it. So where Malcolm was lodging a very vigorous critique about white supremacy, then white supremacists interpreted that as hate right? Because it served their interests to do so, not because it was true. So they couldn't hear Malcolm. And Malcolm knew that. And Malcolm also knew that they were afraid of him, which is why they deliberately misread him. And, you know, Malcolm is very interesting because in some ways he is the most photogenic of his era, of all of the Black leaders. So he's on TV every Sunday. Like, he, he tapes so many interviews He's in the press constantly, you know. He is a provocateur, and the American political scene doesn't have the bandwidth for that. I mean, as an American culture, we do not do critique well. People can't handle it; they can't produce it. Like the political, the space for political critique is actually very narrow. So, yeah, I think that white people project their insecurities onto black people, black men especially, especially when their political claims being made. And so, you know, it was it was very convenient for white people to read Malcolm as espousing hate, even though he regularly denied that charge and created a a wide tapestry of, of ideas that were a direct refusal of that positionality. So, you know, white people wanted to read King and X as foils to each other because that's the only way they could make sense of of what they were saying because they really couldn't internalize the critique or take accountability or responsibility for the social violence that they were producing as white people in a political ecosystem that was, is, and was totally anti-Black.
0: One thing I thought you did really well in the book is positioning King and Malcolm as part of the same intellectual lineage. And I like that you focused on their shared feelings, particularly the feeling of impatience. And I was interested in your reading of riots as mobilization of the feeling of impatience. I was interested in your analysis of King's relationships with rioting, particularly because he articulated the feeling of impatience so often, but he also refused to engage with rioting as a strategy.
1: I mean, part of the thing is that Clint King is a middle-class Black preacher dude, so he is definitely not on Team Riot, um, and he has a lot of ambivalence about rioting because he, especially as as we get closer to '66, when he goes to Cicero and when he gets an apartment in Chicago. He really starts to see that the conditions in the northern cities are so radically different than in the southern towns. And so I think that he has a lot of empathy for the rioters and he wants to connect with them. But they are not interested in his Christian, you know, mission talk. He, they they can't connect with his southern Preacher style. And so, you know, it's a real rhetorical impasse for him. And I think pragmatically what King doesn't like about riots is that it undermines his political credibility as a nonviolent activist because he, you know, because I think privately LBJ was like, go get your people. And King, you know, of course, King's like, they're not all my people, you know, <laughs> they happen to be black, but we don't all share the same like perspective on you or like politics or, you know, material conditions or, you know, systemic social violence or prisons or whatever. So King has a very ambivalent relationship, but I will say that on almost every occasion that he speaks to the white press, especially on Meet the Press and on the Sunday talk shows, he's almost always defending the rioters and asking for listeners and viewers to have empathy for them and about the limitations of their ability to participate in politics because they've been structured out of the political ecosystem. And so I think that he is actually very um, ethical in walking the line between, you know, not condemning the rioters and trying to explain their positionality for a larger audience. But I think that he just he thinks that it creates opportunities for white people to deliberately misread black activism. And, I mean, he's not wrong about that, you know, but he has access to the White House where the poor kids in the ghettos in, you know, Hell's Kitchen do not have the ear of LBJ, right? So the way that they can interact in politics is so severely limited that they there's no way for them to, like, rhetorically produce a new public sphere for them to, like, you know, advocate for themselves or pass a piece of legislation or create a lobby, you know? I mean, it's just like all that shit is so far away removed from – poor people that it's a real class thing um, that I think King starts to overcome towards the end
0: of his life. You talk about misreading Black activism. How much do you think King's rhetoric and his organizing was misread after his death? You talk about it quite a bit in the book. One thing in particular you uh, highlight is King starts to be read as just his dream rather than like the entire scope of his radical agenda on class warfare prison and police brutality i mean white
1: people loved kings i have a dream speech because they love that last bit about merit right that people should be judged by the content of their character not the color of their skin they love that part because merit is the giant lie that built you know uh a slave economy that favored capitalism as a tool of exploitation. So they think that they all worked very hard to get what they have. And all of their myths about hard work versus laziness or handouts versus you know um attainment educational attainment, all of that shit is wrapped up in a merit. So They loved that part of King and they froze him at that moment because it's the time when he is talking most clearly to middle class articulations of self worth. So they they really white people can't really hear King after 63. So, you know, all of the the, what I think lazy historians call the radicalization of King. From the period between the Civil Rights Act of 64 to his death in April of 68, all of his class politics and his anti-war politics and his international all that stuff could just get swept under the rug. Then you see these like neo-Nazis being like, we're protesting stay-at-home orders and we're we're just like Rosa Parks and we're just like Martin Luther King. So he gets reappropriated. By white supremacists in the absolutely wrong direction, because they just steal whatever they can to it's because it's so self serving it's and it's all just thievery so it's not a surprise to me that white people prefer middle class king's assessment of work to anything that he had to say about politics because that's the only thing that they can that's the, the entire architecture of the white self is built on. Do Am I perceived as a hard worker? Did I work the hardest? Did I get the best grade? Did I get the biggest promotion? Who saw my promotion? What kind of car do I drive? What kind of house do I live in? All that stuff is so totally connected to their ideas about their own hard work, which is just like totally laughable. And I think that 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 little bit of the King speech is what becomes his defining moment precisely because it's what white people want to hear
0: can we explore king's death from the other side like as the tipping point for rhetorical shift in the social movements of the 1960s from black optimism to black pessimism
1: yeah i mean i think that especially from the black power perspective the death of king what just gutted them absolutely gutted them and even you know cleaver who's arguably the most radical in the panther party in 68 by some measures his first movement is to reclaim king right as a martyr and that's the right move because they're more they're more closely aligned than than different um but i think that It shook the Black Panther Party and the radical black movements so much because if they could kill King, they could kill anybody. You know, it was one thing for Malcolm to be assassinated in 65. He told everybody it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. You know, and although King had said it, to see it happen, for it to go down the way that it did over the sanitation strike really just shook black activists. And, you know, not just activists, but in places that were desegregated and, and like I'm thinking about Stax Records in, in Memphis, which had always been desegregated. There were always white people and black people working there. And after King was assassinated, the, the Stax people kicked all the whites out of the record. They're like, you can't work here anymore. We cannot work alongside of you. So it created this real schism where white people couldn't be trusted because it's like, we gave you King. He, he was like literally the only person who would never hurt you. And you let this shit happen to him. And he was the best case scenario. He was the most reasonable interlocutor. And so King's assassination was the end of movement politics, really, even though, you know, black, radical black activism continued for a few more years on the coasts. The death of King was the death of nonviolence. And it was also really the death of social movement organizing, because then there was no moderate, voice that white people had any attachment to whatsoever. And so it paved the way for um, the Nixon administration, especially to just plow through radical black communities and destroy civil rights activism with money from the Vietnam War and with technology, decommissioned military technology from uh, the Vietnam War. And so The politics became so much more hostile and so much more anti-black and so much more militarized after King's assassination that it was really, you know, the the only the only option was to, to do representational politics. And so you have art and music and hip hop and, you know, these sorts of things because the political economy had absolutely snuffed out survival programs and community organizing and community outreach through the Nixon administration. So King's death is, they, they, the Black Power Advocates understood it at the time as like a harbinger of death and destruction for Black communities. You know, not that that had been unique. Obviously that's a feature of American public life, but they saw it as absolutely a moment where repression would only increase
0: and they were right about that. Can we talk about the rejection of optimism after the death of King and the idea of revolutionary suicide that you bring up as part of the Black Power lineage? Was this an inevitable outcome during the social movements of the 60s? And how do you read it now? Like with Black death so prominent, especially at the hands of the police?
1: No, it it was not inevitable. White people could do better. They choose not to. Was it predictable though? Absolutely. King understood that it was coming. I mean, he knew that his days were numbered. He knew just in the same way. Malcolm knew in the same way that I think um, radical leaders, like Che knew, Indira Gandhi knew. I mean, you know, they all, they all know that, that, that it's coming for them, that the state is coming to destroy them. So it was not inevitable, but it was certainly predictable. Um, and no, optimism was not possible. King had already fallen in favor with the Johnson White House once he became critical of Lyndon's decision to expand the war in Vietnam. And LBJ was um, oddly moved by that. He He really felt betrayed by Martin. And so, which is so weird. But You know, it speaks to the complexity of their relationship, for sure. I mean, there is a sense where LBJ really sought King's approval um, and felt like he was doing the most ethical things that he could and that he deserved more praise than he, I guess, felt like he got. And so the relationship between the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and King and the Johnson White House really became strained after the Voting Rights Act passed. And that was really the end of their collaboration in any meaningful way. And so when LBJ then cut loose the civil rights movement, then he became a wartime president. And so it's really that moment, I think, that makes the inevitability of the death of optimism a reality in America, more than King's assassination, which was just sort of the, um, the last straw of it. But there is no black hope political hope after King's assassination. Like all that period produced massive, tremendous amounts of discourse and all of it is so totally hopeless. You know, if, if they could kill King, they're willing to kill anybody that they want. It's clear that white liberals can't hear the critiques. They can't internalize it. They can't and won't do better. They're much more interested in, in producing um, a self-contained class identity that preserves their generational white wealth. And so, you know, I, Black pessimism, I think, is prudent and is warranted. This is not a culture that values Black people or Black ideas or Black lives. I will say that it's very interesting that, you know, the Obama administration is when we see this huge spike in extrajudicial police killings of unarmed Black citizens, and that those numbers have totally declined because we have a white supremacist in the White House. Uh, and that's not... It's not surprising, but it is an interesting thing, right? So when the white supremacists have some political control, you know, over the institutions, then the extrajudicial violence looks different, right? Lauren Berlant calls it slow death, right? The choking out of material resources from communities that are in precarity. And we're seeing like slow death under the Trump administration. And now it's accelerated because of the COVID and so um you know i I think that the black intellectuals understand this certainly more than the whites do and even in the coverage of this political moment the fact that the material resources do not exist in communities of color to build you know healthy black life continues to be evidence that you know white liberals are terrible allies because you know even in building a coalition Obama couldn't get it. He couldn't clean the water in Flint. So if you, you know, if you're a black intellectual and you're paying at all, any attention to politics, you know that there's no hope in collaborating with white people, certainly as it stands right now.
0: Yeah, you had um, brought up in your conclusion the controversy around Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Which I had totally forgotten about until I read Black <laughs> Um But I think it's a great story, especially Obama's reaction. he He gave a speech to reassure particularly white voters of his civility. And so um, I thought it was just the perfect way to interrogate Obama's rhetoric and him taking up optimism as a political approach like to build this coalition that ultimately, doesn 't deliver for black folks,
1: yeah, I mean you know there 's a reason why the Kennedy administration is where all of this hope language begins, and that 's why the book begins there because Kennedy was producing a kind of youthful white um, vigor and masculinity that would come to define the baby boomer era for the younger generation. And Obama just resuscitates it, right? Like he just pukes back out the exact same rhetorical devices that Kennedy did to build the Obama coalition. And so it's all hope and change, hope and change, hope and change. Well, I mean, really, it's just hope. And it's really just white hope. And so the deal is that, you know, white liberals get to vote for a black guy without having to make any material adjustments whatsoever. And in fact, many of the adjustments increase their wealth. Over the course of his administration, not necessarily because of Obama himself, but because of the way in which his politics um, really paved the way for the Tea Party to expand, um, you know, just the loss of House, Senate and, and governorships and the state legislatures like the down ballot during the Obama administration is just a, a destruction of liberals. So that's very interesting because white people think that they did a a real solid thing by voting for the black guy. And so the identity politics of that then for them is a badge of honor that they can use to justify whatever smash and grab capitalism happened under his watch and all the anti-black anti-blackness that is produced as a result of his identity politics. So, you know, his move to rearticulate Kennedy is unsurprising. But I think it's really crass. And I think that it mobilizes the worst of white people in the service of a defense of whiteness. So, yeah, I'm really crit- critical of the way in which Obama operationalizes Kennedy's language. I mean, obviously, I'm critical of it for Kennedy, too. But, you know, I gave talks all across the country in '07, And I was like, you can elect this black guy or you can elect this white lady. Either way, you're going to go white supremacist on the other end. So, you know, in my mind, it doesn't really matter if it was Obama or Hillary, Trump would have been the outcome no matter what. But, you know, the fact that it's Obama means that white liberals take a pass on the race question because they voted for the black guy, even though the politics then that were produced as a result of his blackness that in some cases he couldn't stop and in some cases he totally endorsed really undermined the physical and material safety of black people themselves.
0: Yeah, it's like by electing Obama, we just like checked a box, you know, that, (laughs) you know, racial equality is just a box you can check rather than an entire list of progressive policies that need to happen for like the lived experience of black people to improve. So I really liked your analysis of the colorblind post-racialism, like as a false narrative of Obama's presidency.
1: I mean, you know, you and I talk on the podcast all the time about risk. And the fact of the matter is that white people cannot stand risk. They won't tolerate it. They won't shoulder it. And that's why they won't do accountability, right? They don't want to risk their reputations. They don't want to risk their money. They don't want to blah, 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 blah. Ben, their lack of risk aversion is a problem. And it undermines their... um, ability to be ethical allies they're not allies and they're not collaborators and they're not progressive <laughs> you know they're inability i posted a status the other day on the facebook machine you know where i said um you know your obsession with your sourdough starter does not expand or protect rights." and it's <laughs> a point a point at the white ladies right that like all of your stress baking is killing black people like you know it's a direct causal thing it's not correlated it's causal like your netflix and wine is directly contributing to the death of black people and they can't hear it you know they're all xanaxed out and freaked out by you know the shifts that are happening that might you know, cement their kid into a B average in the seventh grade. And so they're all, you know, frantically homemaking as a way of managing the anxiety of the political moment that fundamentally will not reshape their economic future. So it seems to me to, me, to be very self-indulgent in a moment where we see peak anti-blackness emerging in every community in America. And anti-native. I mean, the 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 anti the the way in which the COVID spread and the lack of resources is disparately impacting Native American reservations and U.S. territories is so anti-people of color. You know, I mean, so and but the white people can't even face. They can't face the news about it. They can't hear about it. It's not their fault. They voted for Hillary or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just. I don't know. It continues to be a cycle of um, distancing from accountability. So it's very difficult to watch, but also super predictable. But also, and also the reason for the pessimism. White people don't do better when they have the opportunity to do better. They they won't do it.
0: Uh, so COVID is changing your your book tour, right? You can't go out and, you know, talk about your book. Um, What can people do to find your book and um, scoop it up if they want to read it?
1: Well, I mean, I would encourage them to buy from their local bookseller for sure. Um, If they want to buy it online, they can also go to the University Press of Mississippi's website and search for Black Feelings. It's on sale right now, um, both in paper and in hardcover. Um, and you know, I've got dates planned out through the summer and fall, but we'll see what kind of social distancing best practices emerge. Otherwise I'll be doing some more stuff on the internet and they can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, sharing some of my, um, snippets from the book and some of the blurbs and, you know, some of the ideas that I'm working with now that are, uh, adjacent to the book. So but, but they really should buy it from their local booksellers. Otherwise, we're not going to have local bookstores left.